So one morning I woke up as I was preparing to do a funeral that day. And I take every opportunity to speak, whether it's a sermon or a wedding or a funeral so seriously, but especially this funeral, I wanted to make sure I got it right. And so as I was getting ready in the morning, I was kind of rehearsing what I was going to say. I, I was putting on my pants as I was planning the message, putting on my shirt. I was, I was tying my shoes. And, and once I got to the church where I was having this funeral, where I was leading this funeral, I was sitting in a room sort of preparing my message and I was kind of pacing around and, and walking around when all of a sudden I felt kind of like, like I, I kind of almost like lost my step. And I thought to myself, what's, what's going on? And, and, and so I kept walking and, and felt like I was losing my step. And all of a sudden I looked down and literally my shoe was falling apart. I thought, how is this happening? So I began to get really worried and anxious about this. And so I, I walked out to have a seat to prepare to do this funeral. And as I'm walking out, I'm seeing parts of my shoe falling off. So I have a seat and needless to say, it was so hard to focus on the message because I was worried about my shoe. So I walked up to the platform and, and got ready to preach my message. And, and during that sermon, I, I kind of forgot about the shoe and I was kind of passionate and excited and talking about Jesus and this person's life and the amazing life that they had lived. And then I walked back to my seat. I sat down and I looked up and no joke on the platform that I was standing on after I had finished my message was a giant chunk of my shoe. Like not a little bit, a giant chunk of my shoe. And I was absolutely horrified. So I walked up again one last time to lead the congregation in prayer. And I asked everyone to close their eyes. And, and as everyone was closing their eyes and as I was praying, I reached down and I grabbed that giant chunk of my shoe, put it in my pocket. I said, amen. And then I blitzed out of there. I mean, I booked it out of there. And as I was running out of the church, I was literally looking behind me, seeing chunks of my shoe in the background. In the rear view mirror, there's chunks of my shoe being left at the church. Now, I didn't expect, I didn't expect that that event was going to teach me this important lesson. That if you're doing anything important, if you're doing anything significant, check your shoes. Make sure your shoes are together. You see, the reality is that there are a lot of times where unexpected moments of life have something to teach us. And today in Revelation chapter 17, verse 18, we are going to discover together that the way forward in our faith is unexpected. In other words, what is the unexpected way forward? Have, have you ever been using the, the Waze Maps direction app on your phone? And it's taken you down some back roads. It's put you on some freeways. It's put you on some side streets that were different than what you thought would get you to your destination. And maybe you've thought along the way, is this really the best path forward? Or maybe you've been making something at home. Maybe there's been a recipe that you're creating and you're beginning to put ingredients in. You're about halfway through and you're thinking to yourself, is this, are these ingredients, is this recipe really going to give me the thing that I want? I was listening to a podcast recently with Bob Goff and Bob Goff was talking about how if you put somebody in a desert and tell them to walk in a straight line, do you know what'll happen? 
they'll actually walk in circles. The reason that is, is because on every single human being, one of our legs is a little bit longer. The other one's a little bit shorter than the other. And so if you're in the middle of a desert and you're trying to walk in a straight line, you are gonna end up walking in circles unless you have a target, unless you have something you can see that you're aiming for. What's our target? Here's our target for today. When we are motivated by the gospel, we will see sin as a prison and confession as the way God transforms us. The unexpected way forward is that we are to be motivated by the gospel to see sin as a prison and confession as the way that God goes about transforming us. So what I want to do is I want to look at a few key passages, a few few key verses in the beginning of Revelation 17, a few verses at the end of Revelation 18, then provide kind of an overview. And then we are going to go microscopic. We're going to dive deep into a few key verses to discover together what is the unexpected way forward in your faith and my faith. Let's, uh, let's read these passages together. Revelation chapter 17, verses one to five. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the gospel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and 10 horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. Now let's jump to the end of Revelation chapter 18. It says, then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. Now, we've been looking at Revelation through four different views and really quickly to review those, those four different views are the historicist approach, which says Revelation 1 to 22 surveys the whole of church history from the beginning to end. 
The preterist approach says actually revelation is about the early church, what they experienced in the first and second century. The futurist church says actually revelation is preparing us for what we will experience in the future. And the symbolic approach says every church goes through the metaphors and the experiences described in the book of Revelation. So how would each one of these views look at Revelation 17 to 18? Let's check it out together. The historicists would say Revelation 17 to 18 is the fall of Babylon, the prostitute, is the overthrow of the papal system of religion and government yet to be seen in the future. These chapters feature the divergent reactions of the godly and the ungodly to this final vindication of true religion. The preterists would say, Babylon is identified either with Rome or with Jerusalem. If Rome, these chapters describe the downfall of the Roman empire and especially of the city of Rome, the prostitute. If Babylon is Jerusalem, these visions depict the burning of that city by the Romans and the mixed reactions of the wicked and the righteous. Futurists would say Babylon may represent some great apostate religious entity forming under the Antichrist in the end times. Alternatively, Babylon may be a city, either a restoration of the ancient Babylon or a revived Rome. In any case, this great enemy of truth and righteousness will be destroyed at the end of the tribulation. And then lastly, the symbolic view would say, Babylon represents the world system as the seducer of the godly. Its destruction at the end of the age is depicted in terms of its current manifestation in John's time through through Rome. There's an overview of Revelation 17 to 18. Now let's go microscopic. Now let's go deeper together. Step one to moving forward in an unexpected way, the, the unexpected way that we step forward, that we move forward is this. We need gospel motivation. We need gospel motivation. A, a few months ago, I was at Starbucks and I'm sitting there at Starbucks drinking my strawberry acai. And I know you're like, hey, that's not much of a manly drink. Aren't you a grown up? Aren't you older than 11? Yes, but I just love strawberry acai. It's my favorite drink at Starbucks. So I'm sitting there drinking my refresher, working on some stuff. And all of a sudden I take a picture of this. I see this sign that says, take what you need. And there were these different envelopes with, with these encouragements that people need. And inside of the envelopes were these strips of paper with uh, an encouragement related to each one of those big ideas. But then I noticed something very interesting. That all of the envelopes were full with suggestions except motivation. And I thought to myself, I wonder if right now in the year 2022, more people than ever before are struggling with motivation. Because of all that we've gone through, because all that we're going through, because of the uncertainty that we are struggling with motivation. And Revelation chapter 17, verses 12 to 14, it actually defines what gospel motivation is and how radically different it is than every other kind. Let's look at this text together and then I'll explain more what I mean. Revelation chapter 17, 12 to 14. The 10 horns you saw are 10 kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. 
They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings and with him will be his called, chosen and faithful followers. Friends, I wanna look at these three words, called, chosen and faithful. Let's look at the first two. To be called in the original language means to be invited. To be chosen means to be selected. And and with that, I want to ask this question. What is our motivation? There's at least three different motivations. There's three different motivations. The first I want to talk about is worldly motivation. Worldly motivation says, I must prove myself and then I will be rewarded. If I mess up, I'm on my own. Religious motivation, which is sort of similar to worldly motivation, just kind of masked in religiosity. Religious motivation says this, I must do good things and show God how pious or how religious I am. And then he will give me whatever I want. You see, both worldly and religious motivations start with, I must do X, Y, or Z to get what I want. But what's described here, I think, in Revelation chapter 17 with these descriptions that we are called and chosen, they they open us up to understand a different kind of motivation. Maybe a kind of motivation that you've been looking for. Maybe a kind of motivation that will change the game for you in your life, in your relationships, and in your understanding with God. And I want to call that gospel motivation. Gospel motivation is this. I am loved called and chosen by Jesus, which inspires me to live for him with purpose and urgency. Do you see how radically different gospel motivation is from every other motivation? Gospel motivation starts with not the things that I will do to earn something or to get what I want. Gospel motivation starts with I am loved, called, and chosen. And some of you right now, you're tuning in and you just need to hear this, that you are loved. You have been called by Jesus. You have been chosen by Jesus, that he loves you so much before you do anything. And that can become a kind of motivation that no other motivation could touch. In fact, maybe this would be one reason for you to consider following Jesus is that the other motivations you've tried, maybe they've worked for a while, but ultimately you'll find as we all do that those other motivations, they become detrimental. They begin to destroy our relationships with people around us. It's only gospel motivation that can keep us in healthy relationships with God and with each other and keep us productive in God's kingdom. Friends, remember this. Jesus invited a bunch of unqualified nobodies to change the world and they did. I just want to look at a slew of passages that make this crystal clear. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 16 to 20. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen, not the most ideal candidates to change the world. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. He continues, at once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. 
without delay. I love the detail of scripture. Without delay, without even thinking about it, Jesus called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Let's go to our next passage. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. So Jesus called some fishermen and now he's talking with the tax collector. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Look what happened in Mark chapter three. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. I wanna pause there for a second. Did you know that before Jesus wants to call you to go and do something, he wants to invite you to come and be with him. And this is for everyone, right? Revelation chapter three, verse 20 says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Paul writes it in 2 Timothy. Look at what he says. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done. This is gospel motivation. And then lastly, look at John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And so the question is, what is Jesus asking us to do? So our gospel motivation says that we're called and chosen. What is Jesus asking us to do? He's asking us to respond to his love with faithfulness. See friends, a a faithful person is motivated by the gospel to think, talk, and act like Jesus. And this is a lifelong journey. This is not something you and I will ever master. This is the, 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 the direction of our lives every day because we're motivated by the gospel to think and act and talk like Jesus. Maybe another definition is a faithful person is motivated by the gospel to take what they have and do something that demonstrates God's love for others. What has he put in your hands and how is he inviting you to go and do something for others that demonstrates his love? You see friends, Jesus followers, they ask this question. How does God want to use my accomplishments, my placement in life, my influence, and my resources to advance his kingdom? This is the question on the heart of every believer. But faithfulness is hard. It's grueling. It takes a lifetime. I think a great example in the Old Testament is Joseph. Remember Joseph at the age of 17 was sold into slavery by his brothers. And it wasn't until over 22 years later that he had reconciliation with his brothers, that he was reunited with his father. And I imagine during those 22 years that there were many, many, many moments where he said, God, what are you doing? That as he was sold into a foreign land, as he rose in power, as he found himself in a prison, as he eventually came back out and became highly influential in Egypt, all the while going, God, what are you doing in my life? You see, friends, we learned from Joseph that faithfulness looks like trusting God today with tomorrow even when it feels like a better tomorrow will never come. 
Faithfulness is trusting God today with tomorrow, even when it feels like a better tomorrow will never come. And over 22 years later, after Joseph wondering if he'd ever see them again, in Genesis chapter 50, this is the conversation that Joseph has with his brothers. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? What humility that Joseph was betrayed by these guys. And yet because he has a heavenly viewpoint of his life, because he knows that God is always working, even in the hardest of situations. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. That is a picture of faithfulness. It's kind of like, if you think about uh, a microwave versus a crock pot, man, maybe you've had a, a, a hot pocket recently, right? Or you've had some kind of corn dog or a burrito that you had to heat up really quickly and you put that in the microwave and, and you timed it for a few minutes and it came out and maybe you had that experience where you kind of open up the hot pocket and, and you take a bite and it like burns your entire mouth, right? Like for a week, you can't taste a thing. You're just, you're just, you're done, right? And then you'll take another bite and the very middle will be frozen. And you're like, how is that possible? The outside is so hot and the middle is so frozen. And yet if you cook something in the crock pot, if you set that thing in the morning and eight hours later, you come back ready to eat some dinner and, and you open that up, every single part of that pulled pork or whatever it is that you had in that crock pot is thoroughly cooked and warm all the way through. And if you were to take whatever you microwaved and put it on a plate and you took whatever you crock potted and put it on a plate, within a few minutes, the microwaved item would be cold, but the crock pot item would hold its warmth. Why do I tell you that? Because you see friends, we live in a microwave culture and we import that into our faith where we want a microwave faith. We, we want instant growth in our faith. We want to see instant miracles. We want instant reconciliation. We want to instantly be rid of that sin. We want to instantly have an opportunity to be used by God in a huge and significant way. But here's what I need to remind you of. We want instant, God wants lasting. Did you catch that? I'm gonna say it again. We want instant, God wants lasting. We want instant growth in our faith. God wants lasting growth in your faith. We, we want instant uh, uh, significance in the kingdom of God. God wants lasting significance in the kingdom of God. We want instant reconciliation, instant knowledge, instant understanding of what's going on in our lives. God wants us to have lasting reconciliation, lasting and deep understanding. And so oftentimes God is, is shaping us spiritually in the crock pot when we wish we were in the microwave because we want instant, but God wants lasting. Step number two to, to moving forward in an unexpected way is this. We must acknowledge sin is a prison. This is a huge idea. Sin, sin is not just, uh, you know, a, a lesser 
good choice, right? Sin is not even just a bad choice. Sin is a prison. And I think Satan would want us to believe that sin is just a, a bad decision or it's, or it's the less than better or less than best decision. But the gospel, the word of God actually says, I need you to know the truth that sin is a prison. In Revelation chapter 18, we see that the sin of the great Babylon or, or, or whether that was Rome or the Roman empire or any other empire is so great. And while sin looks like a paradise, in reality, sin is a prison. Michael Gorman, who's a New Testament scholar, wrote a book called Reading Revelation Responsibly. And he talks about this passage of scripture saying, for what we may ask is Babylon or empire judged? Essentially for multiple forms of idolatry and injustice. The two fundamental charges brought against humanity throughout the Bible, from the prophets to Jesus, to Paul, through to Revelation. Babylon is guilty of sins against God, against people and against the earth. Now, the three sins we're going to look at here are the sin of adultery, the sin of pride, and the sin of greed. But what we are going to see as we look at some other passages is that adultery, pride, and greed, they begin in the heart. And long before they're manifested physically out in the world, they're birthed and grown and even nurtured in our hearts. Let's look at adultery in the heart. Adultery in the heart. Revelation chapter 18, verses one to three. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. But adultery isn't just something we physically do. It begins in our heart. It's why Jesus in Matthew chapter five said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, which adultery is sleeping with anyone that isn't your spouse. That could be whether you're single or married to sleep with somebody that's not your spouse. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What about pride in the heart. Revelation 18 verses four to eight says, then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given, pay back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart, she boasts. I sit enthroned as a queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, and famine, she will be consumed by fire. For mighty is the Lord God who judges her. Her boasting and her pride really, like for all of us, begin in the heart. It's why Solomon in Proverbs 16, 5, he, he says this, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. 
pride is insidious and it sits in our heart and it tells us that we don't need any kind of correction, that we're fine on our own and that the others boasting about us or us boasting about ourselves is gonna give us what we want. I wanna tell you two stories that I honestly don't wanna tell you. In fact, they're stories that, that I thought about not telling you because they don't paint a very good picture of me. But because I feel God's sensing me to work out this pride in me, I wanna tell you this and maybe you'll be able to relate with at least the sentiments of them. Uh, a few years ago, uh, I got an email from a camp that wanted me to come and be their camp speaker. And I'll be honest with you, my immediate excitement about being the speaker at this camp was that I would be able to add to my resume, to, to my own ego, that I have got invited to speak at this camp. I wasn't thinking about the kids that were gonna be there. I wasn't thinking about the opportunity to share the gospel. I, I was thinking about myself. And so they said, we need you to send us a few sample teachings and kind of write some responses to these questions. And so I sent those in. And, and then a couple weeks later, it was a Wednesday, I was working on my sermon for our high school students. And, and I got an email from this camp and they said, I'm so sorry to tell you, but we, we've rejected you as one of our camp speakers. And you guys, I never wanted anyone to know that. That's the last picture of me that I want you to see. But it was so beautiful in God's timing that as I was working on this sermon for these high school students, I was talking about the gifts of the Spirit. And I was talking about how God gives us these gifts of the Spirit so that we could be a blessing for the common good. That they're distributed by, good, by God for the common good. And God deeply convicted me that, that my desire to speak at this camp was not for the common good. It was for my own selfish good crazy thing. Six months after that, the same camp reached out to me. They may have a staff change or something. They reached out to me and said, hey, we'd like you to be the speaker. And I thought, are you kidding me? Like this is salt on a wound. Are we going to go through this again? So I submitted the exact same teachings. I submitted the exact same responses to their questions. And then two weeks later, they wrote me an email and said, we'd love to have you join us up at camp. And I just thought, wow, that was so God working on my prideful heart. I want to tell you another story. There was a, a student in my ministry once who um, I knew that he, had, uh, he came from an adoptive family and that there were some biological kids in the family and some adopted kids in the family. And as I was getting to know this student, I, I asked this student a question. I said, hey, so which, one of your, which of your siblings are adopted and which are biological? And my intent was to get to know the student. But a few weeks later, I got an email from one of their parents and he wrote me this incredibly, the dad wrote me this incredibly kind email where basically he said, hey, the way you phrased that question made our child, our student and our family feel a little uncomfortable. And I can, can I confess to you that, that I was a little frustrated when I got that email first. Because I said, I'm, I'm thinking in my head, I'm just trying to love these kids. And the pride in me was telling me, I'm never wrong. I'm always right. But then I sensed, no, sin is a prison. Pride is a prison. This isn't going to help me grow. And so I emailed them. We connected. And, and they shared with me so graciously and so kindly how that kind of questioning can create division within biological and adoptive families, that it, it, it's just not helpful. And, and I was so gracious. I was so grateful for their graciousness within their sharing with me. And then the last sin is greed in 
the heart. Greed in the heart. Revelation 18, verses 16 to 17. And cry out, woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. See, the third sin of the heart is greed. In 1 Timothy 6.10, it says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money. And then in Jesus's own words, he says in Luke 12, 15, then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. The cure for greed is generosity. So I think question God wants you to ask is to ask him to pray, to say, God, what do you want me to give? What are you looking for me to give? It's why Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, he said, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You see, maybe, maybe some of you have never begun the spiritual discipline of tithing or of giving to a local church. Maybe some of you have been in the habit of kind of, uh, uh, you know, compulsive giving as things come up. Could I invite you to consider regularly investing in the ministry of Purpose Church? To, to regularly invest in the kingdom work that God is doing here. I, I was meeting with a couple once who, who uh, one of the members of one of the uh, per persons in the couple was um, unfamiliar with tithing. And, and the idea of tithing 10%, which the scriptures call us to, to trust 10% of our income to God, which is crazy because he gives us 100% of it, but it tells us to trust 10% of it to him. That was a foreign concept for him. And so the, the, husband, the, um, the husband in this relationship said, I, I, I don't, that's new to me. And you know what I told him? I said, why don't you guys consider giving 5%? What if you start at 5%, say we're gonna invest financially 5% and watch how God wants to bless our church while how God wants to strengthen our trust and our relationship with him. And then maybe the next year, 6% and 7%. And what Sarah, my wife and I have discovered is as we have tithed 10%, as we've been generous over and above that, that God provides that, that, that God keeps us from that sin of greed. He protects us from thinking of our resources as our own. And in that we experience freedom. It, it's like, did you know that, that here at our kids camp here at Purpose Church uh, a couple weeks ago, that our kids raised over $3,000. These are little kids, elementary kids, raised over $3,000, which is making it possible for over 600 kids in Kenya to go to a vacation Bible school experience. And you know how they did it? They, they had a competition between the boys and the girls. And so every, every uh, Purpose Kids Camp morning, they would announce the boys brought in this much and the girls brought in this much. And I started thinking to myself, maybe we do that with the whole church, right? Maybe we, we get some big cans up here and say, these are the boys tithe and these are the girls tithe and we do a big competition. No, 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 we're not gonna do that. We're not gonna do that. But to think that these little ones were so excited to be generous because they knew that God was gonna do something incredible through these resources, it inspired me and I hope it inspires you. You see friends, sin is 
a prison. It's kind of like this. Join me over here for a second. Right now, if I'm inside of this prison, I'm sitting here and and, and I I may be distracted. I I may be looking at these beautiful flowers and thinking, oh man, they're so beautiful. Or, Or I may be seeing the jewels and say, oh, these make me feel so good about myself. Or I may see the coins or the money and think these are mine and I can do whatever I want with it. But the reality, friends, is I'm in a prison, right? I mean, I, 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 I'm sitting here and, and if, if I were trying to explain to you, no, but did you see how beautiful the flowers are? Do you see all the coins? You, you see all the stuff I have in here? You would go, Eric, you're crazy. You're literally in a prison. And when you and I give into the thoughts I want this, I deserve this, I need this. This is going to make me feel better. This is going to give me what I ultimately want. That, that, that you and I will find ourselves in the prison of sin. And I wanted you to see this visual because sin is not just a bad decision, it's a prison. And when you're inside of a prison, you can't move forward. You can't grow. You, you, you can't advance in your relationships. There's so many limitations on us when we are in the prison of sin. And so I want to ask you a question. In what ways has sin become a prison for you? Well, the third and final step, the third and final move forward, the unexpected way forward is the power of, of confession. So if we're motivated by the gospel, we'll see sin as a prison and we'll discover that the power of confession can transform our lives. First John chapter one, verse nine, the letter that was also written by John who wrote Revelation, he said this, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I don't know if you caught this. If we confess our sins, God will do all of this. I need to tell you something maybe you haven't heard before. God is unfair. Oh yeah, make no mistake about it. God is completely unfair. And that's good news. This is how God is unfair. When you and I bring our confessions, our sins, our struggles, if you will give Jesus the worst of yourself, he will give you the best of himself. This is unfair and doesn't make any sense at all, but I want you to just listen. I want you to to internalize these words. This is how it works in in the kingdom of God, in a relationship with Jesus. This is how it works. If you will give Jesus the worst of yourself, he will give you the best of himself. He'll give you his faithfulness. You know what that means? He is not gonna run away from you. He will give you, let's go back to that verse. He will give you his faithfulness. He will give you justice, meaning your sin will actually be dealt with. He will give you forgiveness. It means you're free. And then he will commit to purifying you. This means he's never gonna look at you and say, you're a lost cause. There's no hope for you. In other words, there's no prison that you could be trapped within that Jesus wouldn't say, I can offer you freedom if you'll only simply confess. Church family, I need to confess something to you that God's been revealing to me that I'm an incredibly distracted person. Just last Sunday after I was preaching in between multiple services, 
I was so, I was so quick to, once I had finished saying bye to people, to go get a, a bottled water in this room. And, and I was so quick to open my phone. I, I was so quick to become distracted. And, and three times last Sunday, God just spoke to me. God spoke to me and made it clear to me. It, 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 was, it was during that moment as I was checking my phone, I was going, why am I running to my phone instead of giving glory to God for what he's doing or, or reflecting on the moment we had had with God? Why am I so quick to run to my phone? It's because I'm so distracted. Then I was driving and I was, I was listening to a podcast and, and they were talking about Dallas Willard, the great uh, Christian philosopher who taught at USC for about 47 years. Dallas Willard was asked once towards the end of his teaching career, hey, in the last 47 years, what's different about the freshman you're teaching now versus the freshman that you were teaching 47 years ago? And without even thinking about it, Dallas Willard said this, oh, that's easy. The freshmen I'm teaching now are way more distracted than the freshmen I was teaching 47 years ago. He said it's hard for them to even see the kingdom of God around them because they're so distracted. And then that night, our high school ministry leaders, we were doing a Bible study in John 15. And over and over again, Jesus says, remain in me, remain in me, remain in me. And so I went home, I went home that night and I said, family, I gathered together, Sarah and the kids. And I said, guys, we need to talk. I said, I'm incredibly distracted. I'll be at home and I'm on my phone, distracted instead of connecting. I'm struggling with being present. I need your help. And in fact, I said, guys, especially the kids, I said, kids, I need you to hold daddy accountable. Hold me accountable to this. And my oldest son, Charlie, who's 10, he, he got a big smile on his face. And I said, Charlie, why are you smiling? And he said, because usually I'm the one being held accountable. Usually my behavior is the one being monitored. And now I get to hold you accountable. And I laughed with him and I said, yeah, Charlie, you get to hold me accountable. Because friends, I'm deeply believing that the freedom I'm hoping for begins with confession. And the freedom you're hoping for begins with confession. You see, friends, when you are motivated by the gospel, you know that sin is a prison and you experience the power of confession and that brings freedom in Christ. And when you're free, you live free. I wanna close with one last story. My daughter Brinley and I were bringing over cookies to one of our neighbor's house, uh, Mr. Frank. And Mr. Frank is uh, an older gentleman and uh, he had just fallen. And so we brought over cookies to just let him know we we're praying for him. And, and as we get over there, we, we give him these cookies. And then Brindley looks at him and says, Mr. Frank. And remember, Brindley's my eight-year-old daughter. She says, Mr. Frank, do you know that Jesus loves you? And Brindley's like so intense. So she goes, do you know Jesus loves you? And he goes, yeah, Brindley, I, I know that, I know that. And she goes, no, Mr. Frank, do you know that Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose from the dead for you? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I know that. And then she goes this, she goes, oh, good. That means when you die, Mr. Frank, we're gonna be in heaven together. And I was just going, oh, Brindley, why are you saying all of this this way right now? But it was really a beautiful moment because then Brindley prayed for him. And as we were walking back, I said, Brindley, I'm so proud of you. And, and she said this, she said, dad, I was nervous, but the Holy Spirit told me to. See, John Wesley, he once said, give me 100 men who fear nothing but sin 
and desire nothing but God. And I care not whether they be clergymen or laymen, they alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven upon the earth. And so may we be motivated by the gospel. May I live, may we live like sin is a prison. And may I and may we confess regularly and be transformed by God. And that, friends, is the unexpected way forward.